Hey, this is Pastor Ellie, one of the lead pastors of Bold Church. I wanted to say thank you for joining us today. If you want to stay up to date on everything that's happening at Bold Church, want to live stream a service, or find out when our next gathering is, head over to bold.church. Enjoy the message. We have not met. My name is Ali and my beautiful wife and I. We started this place five, six years ago, excuse me, with a dream. We call it our God dream. God wanted us to create a place where not only Christians could come and grow passionately in their faith, but listen, a place for unchurched people to come explore faith. So if you're new, welcome. Uh, We are so excited that you're here. We are in a collection of talks uh, that 150 churches are going through at the same exact time. It's called Explore God. There's never been more unity in the body of Christ, especially in the Bay Area than ever before. But I didn't like the name Explore God, so we retitled it, renamed it, rebranded it, uh, Attack the Elephant. What are those things that are standing between you and God? The things that cause you not to have faith, that are blocking you, trusting him, knowing him, and are literally elephants in the room. Instead of avoiding them or walking around them, we're going to attack them this morning. And uh, if you look on the screen, some of the subjects are very provocative. Definitely clickbait. And today I want to answer this question that I think everyone wants to hear on Halloween. Come on now. It's how can a good God allow hell? Now let me just tell, uh, pause for a moment. I remember when I started this church six years ago, there was a, a very close friend of mine. I had been her youth pastor for probably a decade. And she saw me uh, go to uh, another church and was kind of being mentored by the lead pastor. And she said, whenever you start your church, Pastor Ali, you got to promise me one thing. I was like, Pfft. Tell me. She's like, if you never, and she's like, promise me now. I was like, how can I promise before I even hear it? She's like, promise me you will never, never, ever preach on hell. I said, why? She's like, because if you ever preach on that, as much as I love you, I'm never coming. And that's a general attitude of the people in our culture. And I I just want to begin with this caveat. There are some of you that are exploring Christianity. Some of you, this is the first time in church in a long time. You're like, oh my gosh, I picked the worst Sunday to come to church. Let me just acknowledge the craziness of this subject given this is your first time. And my ask is this, don't walk out until the very end. At least judge me and give me the finger in the parking lot after the sermon. But at least give me 30 minutes of your time to show you the heart of God on a very, let me tell you, I have never prayed more for another sermon than this one. This one is, is, is hard. It's, it's uncomfortable. I, I don't even want to teach this, but I, I cannot avoid what the scriptures say. The second thing I'm going to ask for you is question your questions. Doubt your doubts. There are things that you bring to the table, preconceived notions, things you have been groomed, indoctrinated, to believe, and I want you to question those thoughts and come fresh to the Word of God. And the reason why is Peter Kreft, who's a great theologian, says this Of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. It's just true. This is not a church growth strategy, by the way. So, like, how can I grow up my church? Let's preach on this. No. Uh, Charles Darwin in the 1800s, he was a Christian, raised in a Christian home, and abandoned his Christian faith. Why he wrote it like this, I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For in the plain language of the text seems to show that men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my friends, 
will be everlastingly punished. This is a damnable doctrine. I just want to say, I'm not up here on stage on an ivory tower preaching, pontificating some like theory. This is not like something I'm removed from. This affects me. I'm the only man in my family up until two years ago when I led my father to faith in this church, by the way. I was the only man in my entire, on my mom and dad's side to, to receive Christianity. I have dozens, dozens of family members who do not know Jesus. I'm not just preaching theory. This hits home for me. This is real. I, this hurts me just as much as it hurts you which is why I completely agree with C.S. Lewis when he says this, there is no doctrine in which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power, but it has the full support of Scripture and especially of Jesus' own words, and it has always been held by Christendom and has the full support of reason. I remember it was 2001. I was a sophomore in college, and I remember there's this one guy going door to door, introducing himself to everyone in the dorms. And I was like, oh, man, this is so nice. Like, I didn't even know half my neighbors as a kid growing up. And this guy is, like, going around introducing himself to everybody. And, and little did I know, he wasn't there to just say hi. He was there to share his faith. And I remember we exchanged pleasantries. And I'm like, hey, my name is Ali. And what, what's your name? I don't even remember his name. All I remember is he immediately said, hey, can I share my faith with you? I was like, dang, we just, we just got here. And he began to tell me, Within two minutes, why, if I didn't believe in his God, I was going to spend eternity in hell. And I remember thinking, man, you probably don't even remember my name. You don't even know, you didn't even hear my last name. You don't even know my love for Taco Bell and my hatred for the Lakers. Like, you don't even know me, bro. And yet you're going to tell me I'm immediately going to hell if I don't believe in what you believe. And for two years, I was completely close to Christianity because of his message. And this is why I don't understand why guys stand on the street corner holding signs, turn or burn. It's like, dude, this is not a, an evangelism strategy. Jesus, listen, never preached hell on the streets. You know who you preached hell to? The religious people in church who did not love God. And he warned them, man, you, you better change and stop pretending like you got it all together because God knows your heart. And, and I and if you read the scriptures, it's not the fear of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness and kindness of God. I've been passionate for a decade. If your number one motivator for being a Christian is fire insurance, you're not going to last. I wrote it like this. Fear does not produce long-term obedience. Only love does. Jesus needs to be the love of your life, the passion. He's the reason why. He's the purpose in your life. He's the lover of your soul. If you don't have a love relationship with him, you won't last. If, because if fear is, fear eventually will die down. Which is why some of you are asking, well, then why are we talking about this? I mean, does it convert people? Does it help people grow in faith? Well, listen, truth number one, you need to write this down. Hell is a Jesus thing. It's a Jesus thing. It's not a a, a Western America thing. It's a Jesus thing. And it's often strange for me when I see celebrities wear crosses, by the way, you know. I go, oh my gosh, he's so awesome. And they have t-shirts like Madonna. I remember in high school and college, she wore a t-shirt, Jesus is my homie. I'm like, really, bro? Have you, have you read his words? Do you really want that guy to be your homie? And that's the tension, that people want Jesus, just not what he teaches. It's crazy. 
And, and I remember Deepak Chopra, I remember watching this video once on YouTube. He was at, he's on Oprah or some talk show. And he's like, oh my gosh, you Christians are so crazy. You read the Bible and all you think about is the anger of God, the judgment of God. He's like, you guys don't even get it. Jesus never talked about hell. And I remember I watched this video after I became a Christian. I'm like, bro, what are you smoking? I'm like, I didn't know we were allowed to smoke weed. Like, what Bible are you reading? Because Jesus says this in Matthew 5.22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable, which means go to hell, is answerable to court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. This isn't a book I wrote. This is Jesus speaking. And this is the Sermon on the Mount, which many atheists think, oh, Jesus only talked about love. Jesus mentioned hell 70 times. I went to public school. That's a lot. And then he continues on the Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one part of your body than your whole body go to hell. Jesus talked more about hell than the faith and prayer. Jesus would often teach in parables, like stories, analogies, and allegories. He'd tell a story about a farmer or a guy fishing. Forty parables in his three years of ministry that are recorded. Half of them are about hell. And people all say, oh, Pastor Ali, I love Jesus. I just don't like the God of the Old Testament. God of the Old Testament is angry. Jesus is awesome. Bro, we don't even get the doctrine of hell until the New Testament. Because hell is, is, a, is an idea in the Old Testament. 95% of the teachings, 95% of the verses on hell are from Jesus. And that's the, the other part that you need to address. Point number two is this. To believe in Jesus but not hell is theologically inconsistent. This is where I need you to question your questions, doubt your doubts, and realize you are a product of America. But I, I wrote like this, that many of you in this room Excuse me. You live in America. You specifically live in Silicon Valley, one of the most progressive, pagan, godless areas in the entire country. You belong to a democratic country. You're probably educated in Western school of thought. You sat around and been educated by CNN, Fox News, and social media. You watch reality TV, Friends, Sex in the City. You've been indoctrinated by reality TV. And every time you hear something from the scriptures, you have already been groomed, been told to believe something or not. So when you hear about hell, you're like, I don't want to hear this. And, and this is why you got to realize, why do you push back? Because you've been, you've been trained to do this. You've been raised in a culture that believes this. And yet there are 2 billion Muslims in the world. Think about this. There are 2 billion. And there are parts of Christianity that offend them. Do you know what does not offend them? Hell. You know what does offend them? The forgiveness of God. When Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. Instead of getting revenge, I want you to bless those who persecute. Bless, pray for them. Because a Muslim has been groomed and trained from the beginning, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you don't believe me, look what's happening in Israel and Gaza right now. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. And yet in America, that, the, we love the love of God. We love that God is love. We, 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 wanna, we think Jesus is like skipping through fields, eating rainbows and farting butterflies. Like, He's like the nicest hippie in the world. 
And the moment he talks about hell, we're like, oh, my God, that is, like, so offensive. <laughs> you are a product of your culture. And if Christianity is true, it will offend every culture. And recognize you're not in the Middle East. You're in America. There have been things you've been trained since childhood to believe. So question, why do I not like this doctrine? Why do I want to push back? Why would, why, why would my, one of my f- closest friends tell me, never preach on that subject? I remember I was a youth pastor, uh, and there was this one time where we like, had a service, and all the kids broke up into groups of four or five, and I was with three or four kids, and we were talking, like, and they are asking like, questions that they, they always wanted to ask, but they never had an opportunity. Like, how do I hear the voice of God? How do I read the Bible? How do, pastor, I, like, how do I share my faith? I remember this one 16-year-old kid said, why is hell so long? I was like, bro, you're 16. <laughs> this is a deep question. Well, why are you asking this? And it turns out it's because we, we were all former Muslims in this church. And he was pushing back on the idea, it's not fair that I go to heaven, that I'm forgiven, and my grandmother's not. He was pushing back because he had been groomed, he'd been trained. That's not fair. So he was pushing back. And I'm just challenging you. Why do you push back? Are you self-aware? Question what you question, doubt what you doubt. And there are things that, about Christianity that I don't want to be true. My, my mom is one of eight sisters. She has two brothers. I have 18 or 19 first cousins. Only one of them knows Jesus. And I don't, I don't want hell to be real, because I don't want them to go there. And just recognize, I can't accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and push away this doctrine of hell, even though it makes me uncomfortable. And what I want to do is I want to speak to your objections that maybe you're afraid to ask, maybe you're afraid to even say aloud, and the first one is this. The number one reason why we push back is, is hell is repulsive. We don't push back based on logic. We push back based on feelings. See, I, I can prove to you gravity is real by, by dropping this book, and, and I can show you that the earth is round by, by projecting light, and you'll see that it bends. You can't prove that hell isn't real. You, you can't disprove it, by the way, either. And even though it's very clear in the scriptures, most people don't doubt it because of the evidence. They doubt it because of how it makes them feel. And I just want to warn you, that's a dangerous place to be where you're using your feelings as the guide, as the compass to truth. Because there are things that don't feel good and you should do them. Like vegetables. Like there are two of you in this room that actually like vegetables. The rest of us are praying some entrepreneur makes vegetables that taste like ice cream. Amen? I don't like how I feel eating broccoli, but I do it because it's the right thing. And then if I, if I only led by my emotions, I'll never eat healthy. In the same way, if any entrepreneurs in this room that who like have a business, have you ever let someone go in your organization? It feels awful. It's like the most stressful thing because you like this person, you love them, but they're not the right fit, so you got to like let them go. It doesn't feel good, but it's the right decision. And then there are other things that feel awesome, and you should never do them. Like go to a Lakers game. Come on. Remember reading in 2020 during the pandemic, Ashley Madison had been hacked. And they released, at the time, it wasn't known how many users they had. They had 70 million users worldwide. 
the largest dating service in the world, and it's designed to help married people cheat on their spouse. And the CEO at the time was like, yes, everyone should cheat one time on their spouse. I was like, no. And he kept talking about like how the testimonies of people like, oh my gosh, it was so exhilarating. I don't doubt that it doesn't feel good. I just doubt if you should do it based on feelings. And there are times, let's just be honest, we push back on hell, not because it doesn't feel right, because it doesn't feel good. We push back based on feelings. You never want your feelings to be your guide. Number two is this. Hell is unjust. It's unjust. We, we go, it's not fair. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Come on, Pastor Ali. Think about what you're saying. And often we, we sit around in our ivory towers. I call them Starbucks, right? The, the room is air-conditioned. We show up in our Teslas, brand new, clean. We're getting our lattes. We're sitting back with police officers patrolling the streets in a democratic country. We've never tasted injustice. And we're here sitting in the ivory towers judging God on what he can and can't judge. And really, you got to realize, that's a, a Western American thing. 90% of the world does not question the things that we question. Imagine going to someone in, in, in Africa or in the Middle East or in India and telling them after, by the way, a village of like, thieves come in and kill all the women in a, in a village, kidnap all the, the, the 10-year-old girls, and then use them as sex trafficking w- women. Go to that guy who's the dad and the wife, who just lost his wife, who just had his daughter kidnapped. Like, guys, don't worry. Hell's not real. We're all going to sit around the fire one day and sing Kumbaya. We're all going to heaven. He's like, what are you smoking, bro? He's like, I want justice. If God doesn't judge those men, he's not worth worshiping. And that's what you got to realize. The only reason we push back is because we've never tasted injustice. We don't have a dictator running America. We've, we've never seen people killed for no reason. And when they are, we demand justice. And there's a justice system that the world wants to emulate and copy. We've never had Mussolini lead us. We've never been under the dictatorship of Hitler. We've never had Gaddafi kill and murder innocent people. We live in America, and we judge God because we've never tasted injustice, which is why a professor at Yale of, of, of faith, his name is Mirloff, Wolf, he says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. You know what he's saying? He's saying the moment you face injustice, you want a God who brings justice. And the only people who reject hell are elites who don't face pain, who have AC and sink lattes and they judge God. That's a Western American problem. It's not that he's unjust. It's actually, if you've ever had a dictator, you want justice brought to that guy. You want him stopped. But we push back. Third reason why we push back, we object, we we think hell is fake. I get this all the time. Pastor Al, you don't understand. The Bible's been changed. I go, oh, really? Can you, and I ask five different people the same question, and you get five different answers. Or they go, I don't know which part. And then when you keep asking them, I wrote the question like this, down like this, which parts of the Bible have changed? 
And it's often the part that they don't like. I go, what a coincidence. That the parts you don't like, you think were changed. And I always love following up with this question. Do you know how many times in the Bible that God is mentioned as love? They go, no. One time. 1 John 4, verse 9, God is love. And then I ask the same person, go, do you know how many times God is mentioned as angry or wrathful or the judgment of God? 800 times. I go, which one's easier to add? 800 lies or one? And usually that person's butt cheeks clench like, oh my gosh. I go, maybe God doesn't love us. Maybe that part was changed. Maybe the parts that you think are awesome aren't the real parts. And I, I, obviously I believe God is love. I do believe he loves us. But I'm just making the person uncomfortable. Because I wrote like this, the scriptures are not a buffet where you pick and choose what you want. It's a one-course meal. Which means in the same bite that you get Jesus, you get hell. And if you don't want to eat, then you don't get Jesus. If I were to go to any person in this room and say, show me your Instagram, even people that don't like Instagram, you're only putting your best pictures. Because it's curated. No one's ever going to go to La Vix and have a pregnant stomach right after, you know, the, the brick that's in your belly. Like, oh my gosh, let's put this on Instagram. Honey, look, I'm three months pregnant. Like, no one's going to do that. You know what you're going to do? You show you pictures of your kids smiling. You took 500 of them, deleted 499, and put one online. Or you went with your wife somewhere. She liked this side. She took 200 pictures. They took, no, this is my good side. It takes months to get one picture. And then you got to edit it through all these Adobe programs to remove imperfections. Why? Because we curate the bad away. You know what's crazy to me? That God didn't curate the scriptures. He shows Jesus honestly, as almost as an anti-hero. You ever watch the movie Gladiator or, or, or Braveheart? These men stand up to fear and say, freedom! They're not afraid of dying. You know what Jesus did in the garden? He said, I don't want to die for these people. Take this cup away. I'm like, bro, I have a marketing major. Let's not add this to the Bible. This is one time he's, he's on the cross. He's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm like, Jesus, I'm confused. Sounds like you're talking to yourself. Are you schizophrenic? Like, it's going to be hard to evangelize people when we show them these verses. There's one time after three years of following Jesus, they go, Jesus, when are you coming back? He goes, I don't know. Only the Father knows. Pastor, Jesus, I'm confused because you're supposed to be God. Can we remove this from the scriptures because it looks awful? In that culture, women were property. In that culture, women couldn't even testify in court. You know who the first people were that evangelized that Jesus had risen from the grave? Women. If this was written by men, all of those parts would be curated out. Like social media, showing only the best parts. And that's why I know it's not fake. Because the disciples are made to look like morons. They all abandoned Jesus, the same that you and I would. Even Jesus, they show his humanity. Why? Because the scriptures aren't fake. Everything in here is real. Number four, we push back because it feels like overkill. Think about this. A person will live 80 years. They sin. Why do they spend eternity in hell? Pastor, that, that seems like overkill. Why can't he, 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 he spend a little bit of time and then come out? You get that question all the time. And it's this idea of essence of scale. In the courtroom, what you do is determined by the weightiness of, of the crime. For example, if you kill someone in seven seconds, bah, 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 you don't spend seven seconds in prison, thankfully. 
you go to crime, you spend the, the, the time you spend in jail is determined by the weightiness of the crime. And it's the essence of scale. The greater the person, the greater the crime. So let's say I'm driving, imagine an analogy, and I run over a spider. I'm gonna pull over, oh my God, I'm screaming. I can't believe I killed you. Let's say a neighbor runs out and goes, oh my gosh, what did you do? I go, I killed a spider. He's like, bro, why would you waste my time? He's gonna go back inside. Let's say the next day I'm driving and I kill a cat. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I killed a cat. The guy comes out and goes, what'd you do? I go, kill the cat. He goes, high five, awesome. Another demon down. Let's say day three, I kill a 10-year-old boy. He's not going to come out and be annoyed. He's not going to come out and high-five me. He's going to call the cops. Because a human has more value than a spider, and God bless a cat. Amen? (laughs) Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The point that I'm trying to make is that when you commit a crime, the weightiness of that crime determines the punishment. See, if you slap me in the hallway, I hate this sermon, I'm going to do my best to turn the other cheek. My best. I can't promise, though. Let's say you do that to a cop. You are getting arrested. It's a felony. It's assault. Let's say somehow you get in the presence of the president and you slap him. You're getting tackled, bro. You're getting beat down, thrown. You're going to get your job loss. You're going to be shamed across internationally. Why? Because the greater the person, the greater the crime. And the problem that we think that hell is overkill is because you think God is like you. I wrote it like this. Maybe this will speak to you. If the president is finite, a finite crime fits But if the crime is against someone who is infinite, infinite in love, infinite in goodness, infinite in glory, then only an infinite punishment is appropriate. And the reason why we push back, we think, no, 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 that's not fair, Pastor. If I don't believe in Jesus and I'm there and I'm spending an eternity apart from God, eventually I'm going to repent. I want to be let out. It's a lie, actually. That if you don't want Jesus in this lifetime, you won't want him after either. This is I, this, that myth, that 16-year-old in my youth group, she's like, well, what if my grandma never heard? She's going to sc- scream and cry, I believe you, Jesus, I want you. I'm like, that's not true. How do you know, Pastor Ali? There's a story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 about this man named Lazarus who's very poor and a rich man. And it's the only parable of the 40 where he uses a name. Theologians think this isn't a parable. This is a real story. And this rich man spends eternity apart from God. He goes to hell. And the the Lazarus, the poor guy, goes to heaven. And Jesus is telling this story. And he records the words of the man in hell. Look what he says. Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Because I'm in agony in this fire. I've read probably 50 commentaries, 30 commentaries on this. All of them say one thing. It's interesting that this man is spending eternity apart from Jesus and he never asked to get out of hell. He doesn't say, I I love you, Jesus, I'm sorry. He doesn't say, I repent. He continues to sin. All he wants, though, is water. This idea 
that when you're in hell, you stop sinning is, is false. This idea that's unjust or unfair. Here's a quote. When you deny Jesus enough in this life, hell is simply the eternal echo of that decision. The one you've made a million times in your life. It's not unjust. Because what God is doing is what any parent who loves their children will do. When my kids are little, I pick their shoes and their clothes. I'm like, you're eating this, and you're wearing that. And as they get older, I let them choose. Okay, you can go to school in pajamas. I, don't, I wouldn't choose that for you. But that's your choice. And there's going to come a day when they're 18, 19, maybe 30 years old, and they start dating for the first time. Every, every dad of a girl knows what I'm talking about. And she's going to pick someone that I may not want to pick. And I can't force, I cannot force her to choose what I would choose. Any parent eventually says, you need to make that choice. Because it's the most loving thing to let them choose. Jesus doesn't send anyone to hell. You choose it. Because you don't want him. Actually, the kindest thing God does is he gives you what you don't want. You don't want him. D.A. Carson, who's a great theologian, says this. Hell is not a place where people are consigned because they are pretty good people who didn't believe the right stuff for 80 years. They are consigned there first and foremost because they defy their master and want to be the center of the universe. This next verse is so true. Hell is not filled with people who have already repented. Only God isn't gentle enough or good enough to let them out. It's filled with people who for all eternity still want to be the center of the universe. It's not overkill. God's just giving you what you don't want. It's actually heartbreaking for God. He loves you. He's been pursuing you your whole life. The last objection. It's hell. I can't believe it because it's a torture chamber. Jesus used these words that the fire never goes out. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of darkness. You've got to realize there, there are different genres in the Bible. There's narrative, like story. There's historical. There's poetry. There's wisdom literature. And there's language called apocalyptic language. It's almost like Harry Potter, but in the scriptures. It uses vivid imagery that, that tries to explain a spiritual reality with words that can't do it justice. Like I was reading Harry Potter the other day with my daughter, and she loved the part where Voldemort like kills his minotaur. She said, Daddy, are those real? I want to sit on one. I'm like, no, there's no half man, half horse. No, you can't braid his hair. I know you want to. Those aren't real. You don't read the newspaper the same way you do Harry Potter. You know one is different literature. One is trying to tell you facts. One is, is fantasy. The scriptures are the same way. When Jesus is talking about hell, it's apocalyptic language. There's not really fire. It's worse. Tim Keller, he says it like this. All descriptions and depictions of hell and, and have Heaven and hell in the Bible are symbolic and metaphorical. Each metaphor suggests one aspect of the experience of hell. For example, fire tells us of the disintegration while darkness tells us of isolation. Having said that, it does not imply that heaven and hell themselves are metaphors, and that's a key distinction. 
they're very much realities, but all the language about them is elusive and metaphorical and partial. Let me explain it like this, because that's like super nerdy. Let me show you this picture. Anyone ever seen this picture before? Hey, you, there's a janitor, he's cleaning the, the, the floors of either a cafeteria or high school. And it's usually when there's like hardwood floors or like vinyl, right? And it's like, that guy's about to slip. It looks painful. Has anyone ever slipped and hit their head before? Yeah, it's, it's awful. The reality is worse than the sign. Look at this next picture. I saw this picture everywhere in San Luis Obispo. Farm country. It's like, don't touch the fence. Like, that's what I imagine. It's like, this guy's hands hurting and the guy fall. It's trying to tell you, you're going to die, bro. It didn't say that specifically, but it's trying to tell you with a sign. And it, I remember there were stories of like, guys trying to convince me to pee on the fence one time. I'm like, but electricity goes through water. No, 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 you'll, you'll be fine. Anyone who's touched a fence goes to heaven because they're not living. And the point is, there's no way that this sign can encapsulate the pain that you're going to feel. There's no language for it. And the same is true of Jesus' words for hell. He's trying to describe something that no one, no one should go to. The reality is worse than the sign probably makes you ask the question, well then why would a good God create that place? In Matthew, Jesus says, hell was created for the devil and his demons. You and I were never created to go there. And when you realize who made it and why he made it, it's just, God doesn't want any one of us, anyone who can hear the sound of my voice, if I can communicate one thing, God loves you, wants a relationship with you, and hell was never meant to scare you. He didn't make it for you. C.S. Lewis says this like this. There's no other way to happiness for which we were made. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of inflection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you may, must get close to or even into the very thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? If hell isn't real, God doesn't love us. Because Jesus showed his love, not just by dying on a cross, but he suffered hell. That's how much he loves you. That he was willing to go through that that you're that valuable to him. If hell is not real, then all we have is an old man in heaven who's playing bingo and says nice things to us. He's not a God worth worshiping and following.
Yet our God suffered hell on a cross to bring you home. He doesn't want you to go there. He didn't create it for you. And he loves you so much that before you ever came to church, before you even obeyed him or loved him, he went through hell for you. It's not a sign of his anger. It's a sign of his great love for you. If you can bow your heads, close your eyes. Thank you, Jesus, that you took it all on the cross. You took hell upon yourself. What I deserved, you took. And what I didn't deserve, God, you gave. You give me life, life abundant. God, you so desperately wanted a relationship that you left heaven, born of a virgin, lived a sinless and perfect life, God. So you die in my place for my sin. And then you went through hell on a cross so that I could be forgiven. I was given the greatest gift I didn't deserve, relationship with you, which is salvation. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I pray for everyone in this room, God. There are people in this room that there's this huge elephant, God, this huge objection, this this belief, God, that they can't worship a God who would create hell. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. But the scriptures teach so clearly what you, Jesus, talked about so often. God, I pray for those objections that we have in our heart, that we would be honest, that often it's emotional. God, we've been trained to think one way our whole life. Pray, God, that we would come to the hard parts of Scripture and repent and say, sorry, God, I don't want to believe this, but I will. I also pray, Lord, for those in this room who never heard the good news that there's a God in heaven who loves them. There's a God in heaven who left heaven, who didn't send us an email or a text message saying he loved us. He came himself. Thank you, Jesus, that you left heaven knowing that we could never bridge the gap to you, so you bridged the gap to us. You did what none of us could do, live a sinless and perfect life. God, the wage of sin is death, and you were sinless and righteous, and you took the sin of the world upon yourself, that whoever believes in you and your sacrifice, God, will be forgiven and receive eternal life. And there are some of you in this room, you you have not started a relationship with Jesus. Relationship with Jesus is more relationship than religion. Yes, there are things to do, but he wants to know you personally. You don't need to talk to me to talk to God. God wants to speak to you personally. He wants to be your God. And when you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that he will live inside of you. He will walk with you all the days of your life. And this God, his name is Jesus, and he wants to be your God. But you must place your faith in him. And I would give you an opportunity to do that. With every eye closed and every head bowed. If that's you this morning, 
and you want to start a relationship and you've never prayed this prayer before, I want you to raise your hand on the count of three. You're not saying yes to me or this church. You're saying yes to the living God, Jesus. On the count of three, one, two, three. If that's you and you want to start a relationship with Jesus, would you raise your hand? I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. I want everyone to pray out loud. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me, for leaving heaven, becoming a man, fully God, sinless, perfect. Thank you for dying in my place. I repent. I turn from my sin and choose to follow you. I receive your forgiveness, salvation, new birth, the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to follow you, God, all the days of my life. Thank you for loving me when I didn't deserve it. In Jesus' name. Can we give it up to the hands that went up? I get everyone to stand. I know it's a somber, heavy sermon, but for some of you in this room, I want to ask, what's your next step in Christianity? For some of you, it's time to go public with your faith. We have seven people getting baptized on November 18th. Maybe, maybe you're number eight or nine and ten. For some of you, it's you've been coming for a while. It's time to make this your home church. Pull out that connect card and sign up for Growth Track. Some of you, it's time to stop doing Christianity alone, by yourself. It's time to join a group. Change happens in the context of community. For others of you, it's time to trust God with your finances. I'm going to pray right now for, our, for the offering. God, thank you so much for your tithes and offerings. God, we want to bring our tithes and offerings, not because we want love, not because we want a blessing, but because we already have it. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us, that you died for us, not when we were your your friends, but when we were your enemies, God. And we bring our tithes and offerings as an act of faith that we are loved, we are blessed, and the most faithful way that we can say we trust you and we love you is not just with our words, God, but with our life. We don't just want to sing karaoke, God. We want to give you our life. We want to walk with you. We want to raise our children to know you. We want our marriage to exemplify you, God. And God, I pray that our worship would also show up in our paychecks, in our bank accounts. We love you. We praise you. And everybody said. Hey, thank you again for listening to today's message. If you found today's sermon encouraging, inspiring, would you consider subscribing to this podcast? That way you won't miss the next word that's coming. See you next time.